And Father, we praise you and give you thanks that you sent that star to guide the wise men to your son Jesus. And we're thankful this morning that we are able to worship as the wise men worshiped you, our Lord and our Savior, given that we would be saved from our sins and set free and made your own. And Father, our desire this morning is to praise you, that we would bow down and worship you, that it wouldn't just be at a Christmas time or a service, but it would be every moment of our lives. Jesus, we thank you, and with gratitude in our hearts, uh, we are so thankful that you would give your life for ours and that you would die for us. And we praise you because you're alive and you are ruling and you're reigning and you're returning. And Holy Spirit, we ask that as we open the word this morning that you would give us understanding of something that may be very familiar, a text that we've seen, but that it would remind us of your grace and it would remind us of your mercy and that you would stir our hearts to apply it in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Discovery. Uh, the children are dismissed at Children's Church at this time. And as always, I generally ask you, do you have a Bible with you this morning? Open it up. Turn it on. If you need a Bible, I believe there's some in the lobby. And you can have one of those and take that with you. This morning we will be in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. After uh, weeks of waiting and, and preparing and buying gifts and making food and eating a bunch of candy and junk and things like that, I wondered what this morning would be like. As this week I read of uh, in some medical uh, journals and things that there's something that actually uh, they say happens after Christmas, and it's called the Christmas uh, letdown, or they called it the holiday blues or the post-Christmas depression. And as I read that, I was like, that just seemed kind of crazy to me, but yet medical professionals say it happens, psychologists say it happens, and they say that there's an expected letdown after Christmas because there's no more Christmas activities going on, and that these holiday blues are caused by the stress because you spent a lot of money at Christmas, uh, the, um, the, the problems that you had being around people you didn't want to be at Christmas, uh, you ate too much, whatever it may be, the list they had goes on and on, that people have all these reasons for why they're down after Christmas. And I found it fascinating, their solution to the problem was that you needed to get back to just being busy. You need to just get back to your regular uh, routine and just be busy. And I thought about that's really what the world offers you and I. And I would argue, though, and say that I think the main reason for being down after Christmas for some is that many or some have made Christmas an idol. And so when Christmas is over, you've got to wait another year until Christmas comes again so you can worship Christmas. But it goes with all things that we make idols of in this world. Uh, they will always let you down. They will always bring some type of blues afterwards because once you realize that that idol is not truly God, um, you will be quite upset about it. Well, this 
wonderful gathering that we are able to be at this morning is that we have um, the truth that points us to the one and only true God that we are able to worship and not be let down and have everlasting, ever-growing joy, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The scriptural truth as we look at Matthew chapter 2 this morning is this, the King of kings and Lord of lords is the only one worthy of our praise. Would you look with me now beginning at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We've been blessed to be able to read the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and given for men to write that we could read this morning and that the Holy Spirit could give us understanding. Would you pray with me again? Father, we ask that in this moment you would reveal your truth, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of the word, that we would go and live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we look at the text, the first uh, eight verses, the question is, where is the king? There are these men who are coming looking for a king, and they come to a king, but it's not the one that they are looking for. It says in verse 1 that this is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and therefore, as we were looking last week at Luke chapter 2, and we've looked at this whole month, the birth of Christ, this is some point after the day that Jesus was born. We don't know how long that period was before the wise men came, but they came after the birth of Christ. If you read in verses, uh, I believe, 16 through 18, uh, Herod, when he uh, has uh, numbers of baby boys or young child boys murdered and slaughtered, uh, he uh, got that time from, frame from the, the wise men. It was about two-year period of time. So has this been two years? Has this been one year, six months, a few weeks? We do not know, but we know it's not the moment when Jesus was born, as we would maybe see uh, in the manger scenes at Christmas time. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was six uh, miles south uh, of Jerusalem, where uh, Herod uh, the Great, the king, was living. And if you remember from your history classes, Herod I or Herod the Great was a Roman ruler. He was placed uh, there to rule over Israel, that he was called the king even though he was not uh, Caesar. And he was a man who was a great architectural genius. Uh, He built all kinds of amazing uh, places. Uh, He rebuilt the temple to its glory, and yet he was a man who had great fear. And Herod the Great was one who was very fearful of anyone that would challenge him to take his position as king. So fearful that he he murdered some of his relatives. He had his mother-in-law murdered. He killed three of his sons for fear that they would take his position. And he killed his wife. And so many people feared Herod. Herod and what he would do, especially as these wise men come and ask, where's the king of the Jews? It says in verse 1, there's wise men, that they come from the east, and this is the description we have. We don't know where exactly they came from, and we could try to figure out things, but there's a lot of tradition that's thrown out there, and there's always the tradition that uh, we kind of see this, but in the Christmas artwork, how many wise men are there usually? Three. Does it say that there's three here? Again, sorry to burst your bubble if that's something that you're excited about with your nativity scenes. But, and it's not a problem that you have these wise men there, but you need to know what Scripture actually says and what we add to Scripture, which is not correct. And so the wise men, we don't know if there was three. We don't know if there was 30. Sometimes the three come from tradition that they even had names. Melchior of, of Persia, Balthasar of Arabia, and Gaspar of India. So we even give these guys names, even though the scriptures don't even tell us who they are. Well, what does the Bible say? We don't know exactly where they come from. They're from the east. Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 2 speak of wise men. Maybe that's a great connection for us there, that the Persians and the Babylonians had these wise uh, men who were educated in astronomy, in astrology, and how to interpret dreams. Many theologians think that these wise men came from uh, uh, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and if so, they traveled approximately 800 miles. Imagine traveling without a plane or a car 800 miles to go find the king of the Jews. Time, commitment, money spent, possibly a dangerous trip to go, but there's commitment and there's faith in a star that they see that leads them to the house where the Christ child is. So they show up to Herod's place And if you see in verse 2, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews. We're not looking for you, Herod. We're looking for the one who's born king of the Jews. And again, the question is, how would these wise men know? They travel from afar. They come to look for the Christ child. And how would they know even about him? What was it about this star that they had been taught These wise men are most likely Gentiles, those who are not of the nation of Israel. So why would the birth of the Christ, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, mean anything to these guys who live far away? Again, 
suggestions and possibly connections to the book of Daniel to think about the nation of Israel and its Babylonian captivity, that maybe these are men generations later who were taught by the nation of Israel in captivity of the Messiah to come, of the prophecies that we've focused on this month, of the signs, the things that would be fulfilled, that the people would know this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. They had followed a star, obviously for them a sign. Just as we saw last week, the shepherds were given a sign that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And to them, the angels declared, said, that's how you'll know who is the king. They say to Herod in verse 2, for we saw his star when it rose and we have come to what? To worship him. They came to worship the king of the Jews. And with all the questions of who are they, how did they find out, what about this star, in the midst of all these, the thing that rings out when I read this passage is God's sovereignty. Because you see that God leads these men to this place at this time that they would come and worship Christ. And God's in control of it all because it's his plan. And so he sees that it happens and makes sure that they're there at the right time. And God uses this star to draw these men where they would fall down before this child and worship him as Lord. And therefore, as Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I'm thankful for that verse because just as God used the star to draw the wise men to Jesus, God draws his people to him today that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would respond and worship Jesus as Lord. And therefore, One thing that I would encourage you to pay attention in this chapter too is that in God's plan to save his people from from their sins, to show his great mercy, is not just to call people from the nation of Israel to him, but it's to call the Gentiles, the people, his people from all the tribes, all the nations in the world. That was what has been God's plan before he even built the foundations of this world to call his people to himself and therefore you who are not uh, Jewish that are not from the nation of Israel you should praise the Lord that God would call Gentiles to himself Psalm chapter 86 verse 9 says this all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you O Lord and shall glorify your name And when I read that, I was reminded of Revelation chapter 7, in which you see a fulfillment of that psalm. Revelation chapter 7 and verses 9 through 10, as uh, John had this vision that God gave him of the return of Christ and of heaven and these wonderful pictures of of God's people around the throne worshiping him. John says this in chapter 7 verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the Lamb is Jesus Christ who gave his life for his people. Even though the wise men were following this star, they get to Jerusalem and they don't know where to go from there. It's, all, it's clear from the text that at some point the star is not shining forth because it appears again when they leave Jerusalem. But they ask Herod where, and if you see in verse 3 of the text today in Matthew 2, King Herod heard this, and it says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Again, if you've read about Herod the Great's life, he is obviously not excited to hear this question, where is the king of the Jews? But it says all Jerusalem's troubled. Is that for fear of what Herod was going to do? Was he going to kill more people? Was he going to go into a rage? We don't know why, but everyone is troubled. Were the people troubled because of hearing of another king and they're living in peace at a time under Herod? We do not know, but he himself does not know where is this king of the Jews to be born. And so he gathers up all the experts, the nation of Israel, their religious leaders, the priests, the scribes. He gathers them up, those who would know the word of God. They were not only, they were charged with knowing and memorizing and knowing the prophecies of the Messiah as the nation of Israel waited for expectantly the Messiah to come. And here's what they say in verse 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, these religious leaders knew that approximately 700 years before the wise men are asking this, they're like, Micah already told us 700 years ago, he said, the Christ would be born in the city of Bethlehem. We already have the answer. And when I read this, I always wonder, these religious leaders are being asked about it. The whole city knows these wise men are looking for him. Why didn't the religious leaders rush out of the city of Jerusalem and travel the six miles and knock on every single door in Bethlehem looking for the Messiah? They were waiting. They had the word of God. And yet they did nothing to our knowledge of them to go and seek Christ. <clears throat> and how many people have access to the Bible today? The Old and the New Testament. The prophecies and the fulfillments. And they refuse to worship Jesus they refuse to follow after Christ. And I've heard this a number of times from different atheists who claim to have studied the Bible more than you and I. They've heard the gospel, and yet they reject Christ and refuse to worship Him. I think also some <clears throat> read the Word of God 
commit themselves to reading God's Word and they think that just reading the Word of God will get them into heaven. Well, here's what Jesus says about the Scriptures in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's similar to the way the book of James is written, which we're going to spend time in starting in the, book of, in the month of February. He says in James chapter 2, he says, you believe God is one? Hey, great, the demons believe that. He's basically saying you can say you believe in God, but you're not saved just because you have the scriptures here. You're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not saved by any work or anything that you can do in life. So reading the Bible, you should read the Bible. You should read what is being declared to you every time the church gathers so that you're reading the Word of God. And if you're a follower of Christ, yes, you should be in church. You should be among the fellowship of God's people because you need one another to serve and to be served and to encourage in the body of Christ and to find strength and encouragement in the midst of a dark and troubling world. But church attendance and reading the Word of God saves no one. There is no power in church things to save anyone. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And maybe you say, well, hey, If the gospel has the power to save, what is the gospel? The gospel is what we declare here every single time we gather. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born into this world. He added humanity to his divinity, fully God, fully man. And he grew up in in, in his wisdom and stature. And he lived in this world just like you and I, experiencing what we experiencing, being tempted the way that we are tempted. And yet he never broke God's law. He never disobeyed. He never sinned. And therefore, when he died on the cross, he died in the place of, of sinners, God's people, and his blood that was shed was able and is able to forgive of sin and to pardon us and to make us, uh, to be able to be in a relationship with God Almighty. And therefore, when we believe in him, we are saved by our faith in Christ, the work that he did, and God adopts us into his life. And we do not face death anymore because Jesus Christ died on the cross and on the third day he was raised from death to life 40 days later he ascended to heaven where he's ruling reigning and if you are a Christian right now he prays on your behalf that you would live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you would be following the Lord in holiness and righteousness expectantly awaiting the return of Christ 
Church, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that many of you have been saved by. And if you're here and you're wondering what the gospel is, the gospel has been preached to you, and now you have a responsibility to respond or to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you reject Christ as Lord and Savior, you're just like Herod. Look back at verse 7 and 8. Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. No matter what he says here, he wants to kill Jesus, as you read farther down in verses 16 through 18. He summons them secretly in verse 7, and he understands from them what time the star appeared. So whatever point, they say, well, the star appeared at this point, and here's when we began our journey moving towards the star. In verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He says to the wise men who have traveled a long ways, go and search diligently. Don't you think with that, they've already started that? Don't you think that's what they're going to do? They're going to keep searching diligently until they find the Christ. They've committed themselves to go and worship him. And yet he's a make sure you go find them. Go and search diligently. And again, I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 13, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Man, if, if only everyone who heard the gospel would do that. I mean, we should pray that as God uses you to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people's response would be that, to seek Jesus and find him and be saved by his work. And the assuring thing is this in John 6, 37. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so God saves his people from their sins. And John chapter 10 reminds us that Jesus says he's the great shepherd. He will never lose his sheep. He will never lose his people. That Satan can't steal anyone out of the Father's hand. And so I used to believe that you could lose your salvation. But when I read those things, it's like, no. Once God saves you by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, he keeps you. The Holy Spirit seals your heart to the day that you are with him and you're glorified. And he gives you an inheritance, not just some streets of gold in heaven, but Jesus Christ. And so, brother and sister in Christ, you should rejoice today. Not just in the baby in the manger, but that he grew up and lived his life and gave his life that we would be made a child of God. Look at verses 9 through 12 in Matthew chapter 2. The second point, falling down and worshiping the king. They hear the king. They go on their way. They head out to Bethlehem. It says in verse 9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, at some point, the star they don't see, and then it now reappears. And they're filled with great joy. It's important at times, well, it's important always, not at times, when we read the Scripture, we have it in English, but what is the 
original language, it being written in Greek. What are some of these words? What do they mean? It talks about a star. Was it a star? It's a word for star. But there's something specifically happening that's supernatural. The fact that this star is moving or drawing them, that it stops and it means that it rested over the house where Jesus was. They didn't knock on the next door neighbors by accident. They knew where the house was because God supernaturally puts this star in the place for them to see and know this is where the place of the king of the Jews is at. And they go into this place. And again, when you read Matthew chapter 1 and 2, when you read Luke chapter 1 and 2, when you read the prophets and you look at the birth of Christ, you don't see accidents. You don't see coincidences. You see the sovereignty of God putting things in place, sending the angels, having the senses, all of these things happening. The wise men seeing the star so that his plan is fulfilled, his word is fulfilled, and we are just stand back in amazement and say, God, you are God good and you are glorious and you are trustworthy and they go in in verse 11 to the house and they saw the child with Mary his mother no mention of a manger no stable no cave the feeding trough isn't mentioned Again, there's some gap between the day Jesus was born and when the wise men came. And so what does it mean? It says the child. What does the original word mean there? Well, it can mean a young child. It can mean a little boy. It can mean an infant, specifically a male child that was recently born. It can mean children. It can mean little one. It can mean more advanced or mature child. Whatever the age that Jesus was at that point. Under that two-year period which Herod was uh, stating with the star, the important thing in verse 11 is this. They fell down and they worshiped him. When we were singing No Holy Night a few minutes ago, I heard you sing, fall on your knees. Were you singing that? I could hear you. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. These men fell down, prostrate on the ground, their foreheads touching the floor. And it says they worshipped him. The word there is this word proskuneho, which means to kiss the hand towards, to be done in a token of reverence, specifically this falling down and their face on the floor, this profound expression of worship. And this is what they did before a young boy, a child, who they were seeking as the king of the Jews. And again, how did these Gentile men understand what was going on? Was it the prophecies? What had they been told Did they know that they were worshiping God when they knelt down and worshiped before this young boy? Well, either way, we must take note that that's what they did. And that is the right posture for us today. That we would be a people that would fall down on our knees before Jesus. That we would confess our sins before him. That we would praise him and worship him 
as Lord and Savior. If you turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes of a a promise in Isaiah chapter 11, which speaks of how God's promise to save His people include the Gentiles, people from all the nations as God's covenant people. It says this in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 15 in verse 8 through 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Church, that is a glorious passage of Scripture. Because if you think back to Genesis After the fall and the sin in the garden, God promised there would be one who would come and crush the serpent. Four times to Abraham in Genesis, he promises and says, there will be one, an offspring that comes from you that will bless all the nations. And you can read, as we're reading in Psalms, these continual reminders and promises that God is not just saying He's going to call people from the nation of Israel for His people, but He would call people from all of the nations, all the tongues, and all the tribes. Therefore, when we were reading Revelation chapter 7, the glorious, wonderful, beautiful picture of all of God's people, which then John says you couldn't even count the number of people from every tribe, tongue, and na- language worshiping Him as God. And these wise men coming to worship is a picture of these Gentiles being brought into God's family. And they are the ones that set the example for us again this morning, that we would be a people who fall down and worship Him as Lord. Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus Christ humbling Himself and giving His life for us, it says this in verses 10 through 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That even just at the name of Jesus, people will bow the knee and worship. And maybe at times you read that and you think, well, that's yes, the Christians are going to do that. <clears throat> I believe that there's a day, Christian and non-Christian, every single person will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will be people that will bow the knee that Jesus is Lord, but it will be a day that they are facing the eternal wrath of God upon them forever. They will acknowledge that God is real. They will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. 
But they'll be like Herod and wanting him killed because they face separation from God for all eternity. God, when Christ returns, he will separate the people and those who worship Jesus as Lord and Savior will brought in, glorified into his kingdom forever. And those who do not will be cast into hell that was created for Satan and the demons. And it is in hell that they will face the wrath of God upon them for all eternity. And again, many people are like, why do you bring that up every single week? Because I don't want to be a liar. And you need to know the truth. And the world doesn't need to just know Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. They need to know that they're a sinner in need of the love of Christ and forgiveness of Christ and the pardon of Christ so that they would be redeemed by Christ and be adopted into the kingdom of God. That's why we speak of heaven and hell and why you also need to do that with others as you show the love of Christ for them. The last part of verse 11, as they worshiped and, and, and fell down before the Lord, what is it that they do in verse 11? Look at verse 11. What, is it, what do they do? Worship him and what do they do after that? There it is. People don't want to say gifts. They gave him gifts. The response of gratefulness and generosity they just gave because they worshipped him. They gave gold. And we could go into gold and frankincense and myrrh and, and gold as, a, as something that kings and, and people that have royalty always have. Frankincense, you can read Exodus chapter 30. It was mixed into the incense that was brought into the temple to be burnt on the altar. And then you have myrrh some tree resin that's from Arabia and Ethiopia. And again, it can be used in incense and specifically perfume or in, as an embalming spice. And the one other place that you see that is in John chapter 19, after Jesus Christ died on the cross and his body was taken down, Joseph, and Ar Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come. And it says in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. They took Jesus' body off the cross. They wrapped up his body, and they placed about 75 pounds of myrrh upon his body, embalming him and placing him into the tomb because Jesus Christ had died. Their worship... And their response of giving is because of the great gratitude that they had found the king. And they were able to come and worship him. And I would remind you of this. They, for giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh, did not receive any extra favor from God at that moment. God didn't love those wise men more because they gave something to King Jesus. And therefore, anything that you ever give in any way doesn't get you closer to God. He doesn't go like, oh, they gave such a gift. I love them so much. They went to church 50 out of 52 Sundays this year. I love them. 
They did this. They're using their gifts. No, none of that gets you any closer to God, and none of it saves you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you should know this. If you're a follower of Christ, there should be gratitude in your heart because God saved you. And he's broken the chains of slavery to sin and he set you free and he's adopted you and he's prepared an inheritance for you. So there should just be joy and the response of joy from your heart should be gratitude, giving to one another, serving one another. There's so many of you that are followers of Christ. You've been given spiritual gifts. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit and you don't use them to serve others in the kingdom of God. Why? Is there a gratefulness problem? God calls you to use your gifts and serve one another. Anything and everything we have financially, physically, God's given it to you. He owns it all. So are you a good, good, good steward of it? Sometimes we're great good stewards of giving gifts at Christmas to people, but yet we struggle the rest of the year serving anyone with what God has given us. Do you just give because there is a gratefulness for what Christ has done for you? In verse 12, they leave, go home a different way. They don't go back to Herod. They're warned in a dream. Again, God is in complete control. Tells the wise men, don't go back to Herod. Go home a different way. And I'm reminded as we close that God's primary way of reaching his people to bring them into his kingdom is through his people declaring good news, the gospel of Jesus. Because God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need to use any of us to actually speak the gospel. God could do whatever he wants and whatever means, but he has chosen to charge you, brother and sister in Christ, to be a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what God's plan is. So would our prayer be today, Holy Spirit, would you empower me, give me the boldness, give me the strength, and give me the words and the opportunity to speak forth the gospel of Jesus. Let that be our prayer every day, sometimes every moment of our day, that we would be those who declare the good news because just as God Place the star for the wise men in the sky. He's placed you in this city or wherever you live, in the neighborhood, in the house, in the place that you work, in the school that you're in, kids. Wherever it is, he's placed you so that you would be the shining light of Christ to declare the gospel to people. That's his plan. So stop fighting him and just go and be obedient and do it. And you'll be blessed for that. And leave the salvation up to God. And he will save his people from their sins. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, here is the promise of the people, and this is to God's people today, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
I don't know if I've shared this with you before or not, but when I was in seminary in 1999, I had a class, and everyone in the class was from South Korea except myself. And for some reason, we talked about Korean food all semester. And Christmas was coming, and they said, hey, we're going to take you to the, a real Korean food restaurant at Christmas. At the end, you'll know, celebrate our semester being over. I'm like, wonderful. And we got to know each other. And I can't remember if it was at the meal or if it was a class beforehand. And the food was wonderful, by the way. But they said, they were talking about being missionaries. And I said, why? Uh, or I, said, I, said, I said, where are you guys going? Which country? You're going back to South Korea. You're here coming for education. Where are you going? Which country as missionaries? And all of them, I think there was like 25 of us in the class. All of them said, we're coming to the United States to be missionaries. And in my heart, I got defensive. Wait, we're a Christian nation. No, you guys aren't coming here. And God was sending at least 20-something missionaries from South Korea to the United States because we are not a Christian nation. We are a nation with many people who need Christ. We are like every country in the world. There are Christians in those countries, but there is no Christian nation anywhere. Even if we say we are founded on Christianity, we are not a Christian nation because there has always been lost people. And therefore, let us pray that God would use us to be a shining star of Jesus Christ so that others would believe and be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, as we reflect on the wise men who came and worshipped your Son and gave gifts because of just gratitude in their heart, we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would give glory and praise to you for the work that you've done to save us, that we would rejoice in our hearts because you have an inheritance set before us, that you have made us your own, that you are returning one day, that you will give us a glorified body. There will be no more stain of sin whatsoever anymore, and we will rejoice around the throne and say, salvation belongs to our Lord God. We long for that day. And Jesus, we pray that you'd come today. But while we wait, Holy Spirit, would you empower us? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us the strength to stand when we are persecuted to declare Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, and returning one day? ruling and reigning forever and ever and ever. Father, I pray that all those who are here, that have been hearing the gospel declared to them, who are far from you, that today would be a day of salvation. Father, draw your people to yourself. Save them from their sins. Give them new life. And give them the joy that only comes from knowing Jesus. And Father, we long for this day as I read in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus Christ, we pray that the end is near and that you would take us to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.